Heavenly Father, this morning, as we open your word, as we think about who you are, may you fill in the details so that we can see a better picture of you, a bigger, broader, more detailed, colorful picture of who you are and your love for us. So just bless us now as we open your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how some things in life you are destined to fail? There's just some things in life that you're not going to be good at. It doesn't matter how many YouTube videos you watch, how much coaching you get, how much studying you do, how many flashcards you make, how much prep you go into to do something. There's just some things that you're not going to be good at. Have you experienced that before? I know I have. You can try as hard as you can, and you're just never going to be good at it. You are destined to fail. Not long ago, I was uh, in the wormhole of Facebook videos, and I stumbled upon a video that uh, exemplifies this idea very well. Would you like to see it this morning? Hmm. Would you like to see it this morning? Okay, all right. Let's, let's see it. This is affectionately known as Big Kev. Now, I didn't call him Big Kev. His family members that are videoing him called him Big Kev. So uh, he's a good dude, obviously. He's a bald man, so you know you can trust him. Um, but his body is not made to be a big wave surfer. You can just see it right there. He got those trunks at Old Navy where all good guys go to get good swimming trunks. And uh, he's just built to eat or something, but not to surf. Uh, He's on vacation at some resort, and he wants to ride the big wave. Now, he's got a good coach and a good mentor. He's pointing out different things, body positions here. Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's there to help him if he gets kind of wobbly. He's close to being on his own. Looking good. Oh! He's, he's still dependent on that coach and that mentor. Still getting coaching. Kind of has that arm hanging out there, looking funny. <laughs> he's on his own. Big Kev is surfing, guys. This is amazing. Somebody said, uh-oh. Oh. Oh, Big Kev. Oh, Big Kev. Oh. A family member had to stand up and say, turn off the wave. Turn the wave off. He's going to drown. You'll thank me because I cut the video off where he's still pulling his britches up after that fall. <laughs> Big Kev, destined to fail. Before he ever got on a surfboard, you knew that it wasn't going to end well. He just isn't made for it, not built for it. And when I think of Big Kev, it reminds me a lot of us and how we are destined to fail when it comes to sin. Oh, we're destined by far to be sinners. In fact, this is the way that David puts it long before you were ever born. Here's what David writes in Psalm 51. He says this. It's on the screen for you here. It says, David says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was born a sinner. That's, that's so far before you ever thought any thought in your mind. You were destined to be a sinner. And while there's so much different theology out there that gets really sketchy on the outskirts of things, where there's different ideas of a last generation that will be perfect when Jesus comes, here's the truth. You and I are sinners, and we'll always be sinners, and we desperately need a Savior. And today we look at the position of the Savior. It's incredibly important. And in order to understand the position of the Savior, we have to go to the Old Testament sanctuary system to get an idea of the priest and his position. The Israelites, 
They're traveling around, wandering in the wilderness. And God says, make me a sanctuary, make me a tabernacle. Here's a picture of it. You've seen it before. Uh, and God was so super specific. He said, you make it this wide and this tall and, and this length of space here. And I want you to use this kind of animal skin and this color of thread as you do the fabrics. And I want you to get the gold from this. I want you to make it just like this. He even prescribed what the priest would wear, the, the kind of garment that he would wear. And he's so incredibly specific because God is telling us something about what, the, what this all represents, and it's every part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, uh, God says in Hebrews chapter 5, well, he, through, through Paul, he says these words. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 8, excuse me. Here's what he says. This earthly sanctuary, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. So you look at the earthly sanctuary, and you know what's happening in the heavenly sanctuary, which we get to next week, and we talk specifically about the investigative judgment and what Jesus is doing right now. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because today we're talking about the position, especially the position of the, of the priest. That position was a very honored role, this position. Only a few people would do it. And the position was special because it was a place between man and God. The priest represented man to God and God to man. And he was in this middle position as he served as a mediator, as he interceded for people, as he continually worked towards atonement. Y'all, we don't ever use the word atonement. When was the last time you used the word atonement in your everyday vocabulary? Maybe some of you parents, hey, 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 kids, come on, let's get, get, get together. Let's, let's have some atonement here. You just don't say it like that. Whenever I think of the word atonement, I think of it as, as three words. Here, here they are on the screen. At one mint. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a, a teenager in our church, and I, we were talking about atonement, and I mentioned this, and she said, that's how my dad describes it too. At one mint, bringing two together into one. One of my favorite parts of my job is when I get to do premarital counseling with couples. It's so rewarding because as a third party, as a neutral person, I get to see and interact with two people that are becoming one person. And we get to go through all sorts of stuff. When people ask me to marry them, I say, great, we've got at least eight, eight weeks in front of us because we're going through all these topics of communication and conflict resolution and, and marital roles and finances and children and spiritual beliefs, and, and it goes on and on and on. And when we spend time talking together, it's beautiful to watch them come together as they're becoming one person, one family, one marriage together. But sometimes, sometimes as we're sitting there on the couch in my office, Couples won't be uh, googly-eyed at each other, you know, and smiling. Instead, they get angry and something triggers them. And I find myself not being Pastor Matt, but uh, I find myself in this middle position as these two people that want to get married yell at each other, even curse at each other right there in my office. And I, I turn into a referee or, or a mediator or someone that's working to get two people to become one. Atonement the position in between. And while God wants to be with us because he's perfect and holy, our sinful nature can't really be in his presence. But in God's master plan to save would-be sinners, he thought ahead and said, we must have a mediator, an interceder, someone that does atonement, that brings sinners to the Savior. See, in the sanctuary system, all during the year, if you would sin, 
You would have to get a lamb, a perfect lamb, representing the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. And you bring it to the sanctuary. Here's a picture of a guy. There he is. He brought his lamb. And you would place your hands on this lamb and you would confess your sin. Then the priest would hand you a knife. This is a little gory for some of you that are grossed out, but it's, it's very real too. Wages of sin is death. So he confesses his sins on this lamb. The priest hands him a knife. He has to cut the throat of this lamb as it's dying, the priest takes a bowl, sticks it under the neck of this lamb, and collects some of the blood. It's pretty gross, isn't it? What if you did that every time you had to confess sins? That'd be terrible. And the priest would then take some of that blood, and he would go into, uh, he'd put some on the horns of the altar, then he would go into the holy place, in front of the veil, it goes between the holy and the most holy place, and he would sprinkle some of that blood before the veil. Every confession, every lamb, all the blood, it's sins being transferred from the person to the lamb into the sanctuary. But one day a year, the Day of Atonement, it's a very special day. Yom Kippur is how you would say it in Hebrew. It's a special day where all two and a half million Israelites were coming together and the sanctuary would be cleansed. The sins that were symbolically placed in the sanctuary would be removed. So two and a half million Israelites, they're confessing, they're, they're repenting, they're uh, seeking atonement and unity with God. The priest, he would wake up, he would bathe himself. He had a special sacrifice. He would confess any sin in his heart on a bull and have this sacrifice. So then the next part is he would uh, have two, brought, two goats brought to him. It sounds like a, a petting zoo. I mean, you got lambs, you got, you got bulls, you got goats. What, are you going to have a giraffe next, a zebra? All these animals here. So two goats would be brought. One represents the Lord's goat, and one was Azazel's goat, or the enemy's goat. Two different goats. The Lord's goat would be sacrificed, not for the penalty of the sin. The lamb already did that, right? The wages of sin is death. The lamb died for the sin. This goat's sacrifice was more of a cleansing sacrifice. And the priest would take some of that blood, and he would go into the holy place, and then for this one day a year, he would step beyond the curtain into the most holy place. Here's a picture of him doing it. There he is. Incense is burning. And there, as he stands before the ark of the covenant, where God's holy Shekinah glory dwells. His presence is there beneath the two golden cherubim. The priest would take the uh, blood and he would sprinkle it seven times right there at the mercy seat. Because God doesn't want the sin, even if it's symbolic, to be with people, he'd want it transferred away from the sanctuary and to be done with. And so that other goat, Azazel's goat, would then have the sins from the sanctuary transferred onto it, and it would be led out in the wilderness. Here's a picture of him heading out into the wilderness to die. Uh, after first service, Big Jack, he came up to me and he said, Pastor Matt, you know, I, I heard that uh, if, if the goat didn't just naturally die and it wandered back into the camp, the priest would have to take that goat out and help him die. Um, it's kind of a gory picture. But it's this cleansing of the sanctuary. Sin goes away. And we go through all of that whole system to get to one point and one fact. It's simply this. We'll put it on the screen for you. It's that Jesus, our high priest, he is and has always been in the position to save humans from sin. Is and has always been. 
In fact, the priest's position of standing in between divinity and humanity is the exact position that Jesus is in. Long after the sanctuary system was no longer used, you get Jesus. He's there. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, we get to read some stuff. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Hebrews chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, there is a blue book in front of you. It's, it's the Bible, same version I'm reading out of, and you can follow along on page 849, where we get to read a very small piece of a bigger passage. Uh, I love the book of Hebrews. It is some intense theology in there, but it's rich stuff. We don't even know who wrote Hebrews. It's pretty much Paul, though. Uh, you can tell from lots of different ways. And Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 7, he writes about this guy whose name is Melchizedek. Now, do you know any, does anyone in here know anyone named Melchizedek? We have one. You, we have two. In first service, there was another one. And I, I was cracking jokes this morning, but I got to take them back. I was thinking, we don't ever call our kids Melchizedek. Um, what do you call him, Mel? Uh, in first service, the, the person told me, he said, we call him Melky. All right. And I don't know why we don't name our kids Melchizedek. We name them Jesus, Jesus, uh, Joshua, which is uh, another way of saying Jesus' name. But rarely do you have a Melchizedek, yet it's the name for a representative of Jesus. And Paul, he writes in Hebrews chapter 7 all about Melchizedek, this high priest. What's cool is he the Bible describes Melchizedek like this. He was without mother or father. Uh, it talks about how his priesthood lasts forever. And those two clues tell you a whole lot about who this represents. Here it is on the screen for you. Melchizedek is a symbol of Christ, who uh, is a king and a priest. Melchizedek... He's the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, uh, the holy city. And he's a priest, and his priesthood would last forever. Jesus is the king of the supreme universe. And he's the priest that lasts forever and ever. And in Hebrews chapter 7, you get a little part, a little section of what Paul is saying. In fact, you may want to go home and read the rest of Hebrews chapter 7. Here's what it says in verse 23. It says this. Now there have been many of those priests... So priests that would be in office or they would serve, but then they would die and there would be another priest and they would die, another priest would die. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able. That's present tense. That's not past tense. That's now. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Man, that's powerful. That describes our God who loves us enough to create a way for us to be back with him again. A, a, a savior who's a priest and a king who is able, current, who lives to do this. This is what he loves to do, bring people that are far from God close to God. That's what he lives for. Everything about him is for this. He's the priest and the king that intercedes for us. See, long before you and I were ever born, long before we were ever thought of, long before your parents ever thought of you, God knew that we would sin. And because he had a master plan before we sinned to bring us back, he gave us an intercessor, a mediator that would be in the position to save us. Understand this position. It's in the middle. 
It's in the middle. Jesus is in the middle between the sinful and the sinless. He's in the middle between the selfish and the selfless. He's in the middle between the rebellious and the redeemer, between the disobedient and divinity. He's in the middle between the human failures and his holy father. He's in this middle position between faithless and the faithful, between the sacrilegious and between the savior. Jesus takes the middle position, the only position that would save humans, the only position that, could, that was needed, and the one that only a God of love would give in order to get us back. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, I think, says it best. Here's what it says. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that he could be made, we could be made right with God through Christ. It's the middle position. Jennifer and I had been waiting and waiting and waiting nine months to meet our firstborn child. Oh, we had, we had gone to Italian restaurants. We'd gotten eggplant parmesan. It doesn't work, by the way. We had done long walks. We'd done jumping jacks, anything to get this baby out. Jen was ready. She was done with pregnancy. In fact, I've got a picture of her here. A couple of pictures of her. There she is. Oh, isn't she beautiful? Man, I am blessed. We were ready. We had the go bag ready. We had the nursery ready. We were ready. I mean, for five and a half years, we had been uh, the Smith family, just the two of us, and now we were ready to make the Smith family a little bit bigger. And so finally, at 10.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, she said, Matt, these are serious contractions. And so we got in the car and we drove over to the hospital and, and uh, they checked her out and they said, well, you're, you need to stay. You're dilated enough that you can stay. And so she got into her bed and then we got out of the bed because those contractions were painful and hurting. And so we, we, were, we were hurting and we were struggling and it was painful as we walked down the hallway. Let's be honest, I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> And uh, we were doing breathing, all this stuff. And it was about time to have this baby. But as I was thinking about it in the, the weeks leading up to this moment, I was getting worried because she was my wife. I mean, for five and a half years, she and I, we were just us. It was just us as our family. She was my beloved, my one and only. She was my best friend and, and the one that I loved the most. And as I thought about having babies, and you know, as some of you as new parents, it's really kind of scary. You don't know what you don't know. And so you don't know what having a baby's like. And so I, I'm thinking, man, she could die. And I mean, I'm, I know I'm going to love my kids, but I don't want to have them and lose her. And, and I want, she's the one I love the most. I don't want to lose her. Well, the doctors came in, the nurses came in, the contractions got stronger and stronger. She would breathe through them and push through them. And it wasn't too long before we met Caffrey David Smith for the very first time. I brought a little video of him here. Here he is. Oh, it's my buddy. 
Oh, he was born, and they, they put him on mom's chest for a few moments, and they took him over and put him in a little bassinet, and uh, they were cleaning him up, and they brought the birth certificate over, and they put ink on his feet, and they pressed it into his birth certificate. He was crying a little bit. They were cleaning him up a little bit, and I just stood over him looking at him, and I, I remember, and some of you new dads probably did the same thing. I looked at the nurse, and I said, can I touch him? And they said, he's yours talking to him a little bit. Just a minute later, I mean, he's only been in, in the world for a handful of minutes, and the nurse say, we're going to take him to the nursery to give him his bath. And for a moment, I found myself in a position I'd never experienced before, because my newborn son, he couldn't do anything. He, he, he needed help. He needed someone that would look after him, that would be responsible for him, that would care for him. He's just, he just a little guy, needs help. And, and they were taking him away. But I have my wife, the one I love the most, that has, has been through the most traumatic experience any human body can have. She's there in her bed, recovering, still in pain, I'm sure. And then they're taking my, my newborn son, and they're taking him out the door, and, and, but my wife is still there, and the door's now open, and the nurses are taking my newborn son away, and I know he needs me. I, I feel like I've got to be with him, but I want to be with the one that I love the most, and she's still in bed. And as he's headed out the door, I look back to the one I love the most, my family, and I say, can I go with him? I think he needs me. And she says, go with him. And for a millisecond, in just a microscopic way, I feel like this is something what Jesus feels for us. Where he's torn because he's in the position in the middle between the one he loves the most, his father, the master, his counterpart in the plan of redemption, between him and you. He's torn between being with his father and being with you, but he felt like it was worth it to be with the ones he loves the most. It's his position that makes all the difference. Man, may we forever be in awe of God, our eternal high priest that puts himself in the position, in the gap between divinity and humanity. What an awesome God, he truly is.